In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production in association with City News. Hey, it's Jordan. We have a special bonus episode for you today. If you've listened to this show for a while, you might be familiar with Laura Palmer, an investigative journalist who hosts a podcast also on this network called Island Crime. What you may not be familiar with is her back catalog. Before she joined Frequency, she released the first season of Island Crime, which was an investigation into the still-unsolved disappearance of a young woman named Lisa Marie Young. Lisa disappeared 20 years ago. And so this week, on the anniversary of her disappearance, Laura has released a follow-up, an investigation into the last man Lisa was seen with before she went missing. He was driving a red Jaguar. I'll let Laura tell you the story. Red Jag Guy. That's how I first think of Christopher William Adair when I begin researching his connection to Lisa Marie Young's disappearance. While standing outside, one of her friends struck up a conversation with an unknown male who was driving an older model red Jaguar. The unknown male described in the Crime Stoppers video about Lisa is in fact Chris Adair. We know for certain Chris is the driver of the Burgundy Jaguar, the man who left a house party with Lisa in his car, and we know that Lisa is never seen alive again. I don't know what happened the night Lisa vanished, but I do know this. Christopher Adair is a key figure in this story and could be central in coming to grips with the Lisa Marie Young case. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Red Jag Guy, a two-part update to Where is Lisa? Island Crime Season 1. These episodes mark the 20th anniversary of Lisa's disappearance with a focus on Christopher William Adair, the last person seen with Lisa. He wins people over. He's very charming. That's why no one believed me. And um, so he's, he's good at what he does. He's very good at it. He's very disarming. He seems like Prince Charming because he can come up, he can come across that way. Like I said, he's a very he's a very outgoing dude and charming even and a little bit sophisticated. He has an air of he's sophisticated. Just doesn't have an education. Like he hasn't he's just a nobody. He's 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 gotten by on his grandmother's money and people's fraudulent credit cards. Chris really doesn't trust people. He only can rely on himself 100%. The only person he can truly trust is himself. Based on my experience and the number of frauds he's been convicted of, um, I wouldn't trust him with a old piece of mail. He just has no soul. <laughs> he's a manipulator and really the worst kind of person I've, one of the worst people I've met. Early 
Earlier in the series, I included the small bits of information I'd collected about Chris. I know a lot more now, including where he has been living most recently, and some of what he's been up to over the past 20 years. Lisa has now been gone for two decades. If you've listened to the earlier episodes in this series, you'll get that Island Crime is victim-focused. I've spent years talking to Lisa's friends and family, trying to bring her to life here so that you will care about what happened to her and continue to demand answers for her family and justice for Lisa. But in these two episodes, I'm shifting my focus to a man who may hold answers to what happened to Lisa, Christopher Adair. I'll be really clear. Christopher Adair has never been charged in relation to Lisa's case. I'm not making allegations regarding Chris as it relates to Lisa's disappearance. Here is a fact. Christopher Adair picked up Lisa Marie Young outside of the Jungle Nightclub in Nanaimo on the evening of June 29, 2002. Later that night, he leaves a house party, alone with Lisa, in his grandmother's red jag, ostensibly to get a late-night snack. Lisa is never seen again. His proximity in time and place makes him someone I want to speak with. But Chris won't talk to me. I've tried getting in touch with him in every conceivable way. I've reached out through social media, through this podcast, through a number of his friends and relatives. I found emails and phone numbers for him and tried them repeatedly, but nothing. I don't read anything into Chris's decision not to speak with me. People have all kinds of reasons not to talk to a journalist. He could hate the media. A lot of people do. He might even have developed a particular dislike for me as a result of this podcast. Maybe he's been advised not to talk to me. Or perhaps he just feels like he won't get a fair shake. In focusing on Chris in these episodes, it is not my intent to shame or bully him into speaking with me. It is absolutely his choice to remain silent about what happened the night Lisa vanished. It's my hope that someone who knows Chris is listening now. Chris won't talk to me, but it's possible he has shared information with someone close to him. And so, in the absence of hearing from Chris, I'm continuing to gather information that brings me closer to understanding the man who represents the last real link to Lisa. By the end of these two episodes, you will know a lot more about Red Jag Guy. Before I turn my attention to Chris, a reminder of what's at stake here. Lisa Marie Young, just 21 when she vanishes, beloved by her family and her many friends. Vancouver Island, as it turns out, can be a very small world. I learn Lisa's auntie Diane lives quite close to me. Diane is Lisa's father, Don Young's sister. A while back, Diane painted her house while listening to my series about her niece. She doesn't want to be interviewed. She's still too filled with sadness and anger. But she does invite me into her home. Lisa was special to her Aunt Diane. She was Diane's first niece, her parents' first grandchild. When I originally met Lisa's Tleokwit family, one of the very first stories I heard was of how Lisa walked 
at about eight months of age. And now, here I am, sitting with Lisa's Aunt Diane, flipping through pages of an old photo album. And the first picture she shows me is of baby Lisa, standing for the first time at just about eight months old. It's a story both sides of Lisa's family love to tell. Lisa, so little and so filled with promise. I'm sitting in an armchair in Diane's comfortable living room. We're watching old home movies. She wishes she had more footage of Lisa, but I'm grateful even for the small glimpses. Back then, the family video camera was mostly reserved for Christmases and special occasions. And as luck would have it, those were times when Lisa would make the trip to Port Alberni to visit her family here. There's Lisa, lying down, flipping through a big glossy book about her favorite hockey team, the Canucks. And there's Lisa, curled up on a sofa, watching as family members open Christmas gifts, pausing to stick out her tongue good-naturedly, mugging for the camera. Lisa's a teen in these images. She's hanging out with her family in her grandparents' basement, the place where the most famous picture of Lisa Marie Young is taken, the one on the missing posters. Diane searched for Lisa back when she disappeared, convinced that Lisa might still be alive, held against her will. Today, she knows in her heart that Lisa is gone, but she hasn't stopped searching for answers. Christopher William Adair is the last verifiable nexus between Lisa and whatever happens next. When I began researching Lisa's case a few years ago, I hit a lot of dead ends when it came to Christopher Adair. I knew he was driving his grandmother Jerry's red jag that night. I knew his grandmother was a prominent realtor. Chris had been described as handsome, charming even. But it would prove challenging to find anyone to speak with me on the record about the guy. The picture that seemed to emerge was of a handsome, privileged, preppy young man. The kind of anti-hero you might find in a John Hughes movie. But it turns out I had put two and two together and got it wrong. The first image I could find of Chris appeared to confirm my earlier view. It's a childhood photo in the Nanaimo Daily newspaper. Headline, Visitor Enjoys Newcastle, taken in the summer of 1985. A smiling nine-year-old Chris Adair squints into the sunshine, his shaggy, bright blonde hair gleaming in the light. He is lean, gap-toothed, adorable. Newcastle Island is now called Seisachin, the original Snenamak First Nation heritage name. And little Chris Adair is now a middle-aged adult, almost 50. But between then and now, Chris's life has been far from charmed or privileged. Yes, his grandma was a wealthy and influential business person. But those advantages were not part of Chris's childhood. Chris's mom, Brenda, is young when he's born. She has little money, and I'm told she wrestles with her mental health throughout her life. As a child, Chris ends up bouncing between time and care and time with family, 
He's described to me as not a well-adjusted child. At one point, a family member has a restraining order taken out against him when he's in his teens. I'm told there's a juvenile record, which of course I can't access. The next time Chris makes the papers is in 1993. He is a member of the Royal Canadian Air Cadets. Now a teen, he's being awarded a prestigious Duke of Edinburgh award. The award is meant to encourage youth along a path to a productive and prosperous future. Um, my life, I'm happily married with two children. I'll be 46 at the end of May. Meet Tanya. Not her real name, by the way. I have a career in the um, longshore industry. <laughs> I work in the I work at the port, so I unload ships and drive machinery around the docks and stuff. I don't know what else. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> I know her real name, and I'm confident in her identity. But I've agreed to keep her name confidential. Like most of the people whose lives have intersected with Chris. She worries about backlash for herself and her family. Tanya's world collides with Christopher's when they're both teenagers in the early 1990s. I met him, I was working in the mall and my coworker and I thought he was cute. And so my coworkers told, told him that I thought he was cute and he exchanged numbers and then it went from there, <laughs> unfortunately. I worked for in the food court when he came to get food from us. Um, and I noticed him in the mall previous to that. Just He would just sit out and, and like watch us work and then came to get, I think it was a hot dog or something. Um, and that was when my friend said that to him. You can picture the scene. Tanya is plugging along at the food court in a small town mall. She's a teen in her final year of high school. And when Christopher Adair shines his light on her, she is drawn to him. I thought he was handsome and charming, tall, blonde, short hair, always well kept. You know, very, very charming and, and told you exactly what you wanted to hear. This is Tanya's first boyfriend, her first love. She is captivated by Chris. He was my first boyfriend ever. First guy I'd ever kissed, ever, ever even talked to because I was really shy going to school. So yeah, he was my first ever boyfriend. Chris is a year older. He's 19. He didn't have a story and I didn't think to ask. I just was, you know, the first boyfriend madly in love with him. <laughs> they do the kinds of things together that teenagers in love in a small town in the early 90s would do. We went to like movies. I, I actually volunteered for the Kamloops Blazers at the time. So I was going to a lot of concerts and a lot of blazer games and i would always get him you were allowed one free guest but he would always come with me to those games and i think back now like he wouldn't let me go to those games alone to, to volunteer i i think back that now that he was going with me because he was controlling he would stand there and he'd watch me because i was a like i helped people find their seats and stuff and he'd stand there and he'd watch me like interact with the people and I'm like, oh, he's just wanted to spend time with me. But actually, he was, you know, watching what I was doing. It's been more than 25 years since all of this happened. But I asked Tanya to sift through those memories and see what stands out 
about Chris back then? All I knew is that he had a, a sister named Brandy, a mom named Brenda. I never did meet her. Um, and her and his grandma Jerry on the island that always sent him money. Like when he needed money, she'd send him five hundred bucks or a thousand bucks or whatever. She'd send him. He'd call her up and say, "Hey, grandma, I need some money," and she'd send it to him. I felt he was very close to his grandmother and his mother and sister. He was always like protecting them. From what I have no idea, but he, he was very. You never. You didn't speak badly about his sister or his mom. Chris isn't working. He's attending school sporadically at best, but he loves spending lots of time cycling. He had a bike that he was, he would go for long bike rides. He was really into, he had really expensive bikes that he had no money to buy the bikes, but he always ended up with big expensive bikes and all the equipment that went with the bikes, like the fancy, the fancy clothing and everything like that. So he'd go for bike rides for like eight hours a day and then come back. He doesn't appear to have any friendships. But Tanya does recall a time when he took her to a house party. She describes the partygoers as a bunch of scary-looking dudes. He took me to a house that was, like, full of people doing drugs, and I'd never been around drugs in my life, so I got scared and I left. Tanya is still in Chris's thrall, but not everyone in her circle appears to be as enamored with her new boyfriend as she is. Every time I took him around the school or to like a school dance or whatever everybody wanted to beat him up for some reason there was always a fight when Chris was there I could never understand it because like he didn't do anything while I was with him there but everybody everywhere he went people wanted to beat him up I didn't know what to make of it I just I just couldn't understand why people always wanted to beat him up like we went to I remember we went to a school dance and we couldn't like I lived within walking distance to the school but we couldn't walk home because there was about a group of about 10 or 15 guys who were waiting outside the school for him to beat him up so I had to call actually we had to jump in to my friend's car or we would have or we would have got like swarmed and beat up and our friend drove us home I thought people were were envious or the guys didn't like him because he was you know tall good looking guy I, I don't I don't know. I was very naive back then. I, I, I don't even know what I was thinking, to be honest. And then Chris takes things to the next level. We were just sitting on the bed downstairs watching a, watching a movie, and he, he started it. I'm like, no. And then he's like, yep, it's not going to hurt. I'm like, yes, it is. I don't want to. And then he just continued. Tanya has described herself as naive. She is also inexperienced sexually. He was the very, very first person that I ever had sex with. Like, I, I told him I was a virgin. And then when we had sex for the first time and I didn't bleed, then he really got angry. He And then he called me a liar and I, was, I wasn't a virgin. And he was, like, mad for, like, weeks. After that, Tanya alleges Chris did whatever he wanted to do. So whenever he wanted it, he took it whether I wanted it or not. Then, before she knew it... Chris has moved in. He talked my parents into letting him live with us in the basement because he was his rent, the place that he was renting was kicking him out. And again, me being naive and stupid, I asked my parents if he could move into the basement. They were under the impression that they were just helping this young kid out that had no family to help him. Tanya and Chris are together for almost a year. He's living in her family home. As time goes on, the relationship sours. There are a few moments that stand out from this period of time. A song came on the radio and I 
turned it off because I didn't want to listen to that song. And he got up and he turns it back on. He's like, don't you know that this is our song? Don't you want to listen to it? I'm like, no, I didn't know that that was our song. And then he like slammed me up against the wall. I'm like, what are you doing? He like tried to choke me. And then I, I got away from him and ran to my sister's bedroom and woke my sister up. Things are beginning to unravel in the relationship. But Chris convinces Tanya to accompany him on a short trip. It was like a hot, hot weekend. We were there for a couple of days because we took a tent. It was a hot weekend and we just walked down like the desert. He was always trying to get me to go into the forest on trails and stuff like that. And I'm like, what are we doing? Where are we going? So it was like this really weird, creepy trip. And I'm like, I'm going home. I made sure that we like stayed in the public area. I wasn't going into the forest with him. Tanya's parents, too, begin to feel uncomfortable about their daughter's boyfriend, the man now living in their home. Here's what Tanya tells me she learns from her mom. And she told me that when she was home alone with Chris, she was scared of him. She she didn't like the like him in the house being her being alone in the house with him at all. Her father is no longer happy about Chris remaining in their home rent free. There was one time that um, my dad was trying to call his grandma to like say, hey, you know what's going on? The kid needs money. Their kid needs to move out or something. And w- Chris heard him and went and ripped the the phone out of the wall so nobody could call out of the house. My dad and my dad wasn't a fighter, so he probably just tried to like um, smooth over the situation. As the school year comes to an end, Tanya is realizing she no longer wants Chris in her life. They've been fighting a lot, but she doesn't know how to end the relationship or how to get him out of their home. Chris has bought her a promise ring, but she doesn't wear it. A snapshot of her school yearbook tells the story. She didn't want him to sign her book. She didn't want the lasting memory of him. But then... Everybody was signing my yearbook at school at the end of the year, and he wanted to sign my yearbook. And I'm like, okay, well, you can sign my yearbook, but don't, you know, don't take up too much spots or space because I want other people to sign it. So he's like, oh, no, I won't. And then he goes and writes this whole entire, like, back page of the book so I couldn't even rip out the page at a later date it's all on the like the hard covered book and it's basically like he wanted to like start a life with me and like he he called himself my my stud muffin that was that was his nickname that he brought made up for himself that I that I he wanted me to call him Chris writes about what a special young woman and girlfriend she is congratulating her on her graduation and wishing that all her dreams come true. He writes, A best friend is someone who helps you when darkness comes your way. A best friend serves a purpose to fill the needy place. Best friends to the end. Love, Stud Muffin. Tanya spends much of that summer away at cadets camp. When she calls home to talk to her parents, she says Chris always picks up the phone and listens in so she can't have a private talk with them. When she does talk to Chris, they fight. That fall, she tells him she's not marrying him. She doesn't want to be with him. It's her feeling at the time that he's going to beat her up. She flees her home with her father. She recalls Chris packing up and leaving in a van. She alleges he rifled through the home before leaving, taking with him, among other things, her grandmother's wedding ring. Tanya moves on. 
with a new boyfriend and a new job at Walmart. But Chris is not ready for it to be over. Once he was moved out, he would sit outside. I used to work at Walmart, so he'd sit outside on the on the bench and watch me work. And finally, my my new boyfriend put a put a run to him. Tanya's new boyfriend tells Chris to get lost and threatens violence should he return. So yeah, he eventually disappeared and left. That night, after I speak with Tanya, she sends me a short, sad postscript. She writes, One more thing I forgot to mention. He was always telling me I was ugly. No guy would ever want me. He was the best that would ever happen to me. I'm piecing together Chris's life as best I can based on original source interviews with those who can inform my story with direct experiences. The next voice you'll hear belongs to another woman who was temporarily a roommate of Chris's. I'm a graphic designer. I have a, a really cute little dog that I love and I like hiking and rock climbing and um, outdoor things. But mostly I work a lot <laughs> these days. <laughs> Yeah. She too has asked that I hold her name in confidence. Although once again, she is not an anonymous source. I know who she is and I believe her information is credible. Meet the woman we're calling Larissa. I met Christopher Adair at the climbing gym in Nanaimo called the Romper Room. And uh, I'm an avid rock climber. I was and I still am. And um, so I met him there and he told me about this outdoor program he was going into in Fernie called the MAST program. And I was interested to the point that I said, I want to join too. I want to, I want to do this program. It was sounded amazing. It was um, all a variety of outdoor skills such as rafting and mountaineering and climbing was part of it and um, ski snowboard instructing. Uh, so I applied and I got in. You know, it was a long time ago, but, you know, I'd probably exchange information with him and we agreed to be roommates. Chris is now in his early 20s. It's after his relationship with Tanya has fallen apart. I'm curious about how Chris comes across in those initial interactions. When I met him at the climbing gym, um, he just looked and seemed like any other outdoor person. And... It was very surprising to me that he turned out not to be a very nice person because most outdoors people are good people. The majority of them are just really honest, really uh, nice people that you can trust. And so I let my guard down with him very quickly. And also I was young and, you know, into exploring the world. And um, so I just trusted him and I just thought, you know, this is an outdoorsy person that I can be friends with. And, you know, I just, um, you know, want, went into being a roommate with him. And I'd had some roommates before, but they were people I knew really well. So he was, I suppose, the first unknown new roommate. But at that age, I would just meet people and I would just hang out with them. And I didn't think too much about it. That's, you know, I was very free spirited. I press her for more details about Chris back then. He was just pretty normal, honestly. Um, he had short uh, slightly bleach blonde hair, perhaps. He was quite slender, 
He had an, an interest in the outdoors. He told me he liked mountain biking. I don't really remember there being anything remarkable about him or anything unremarkable. He was just a pretty normal guy. So it was really the program that drew me to him. The Mountain Adventure Skills Training Program takes place at the College of the Rockies in Fernie, British Columbia. Here's how the program is described on the website. Imagine your stunning BC Rocky Mountain classroom, where you'll spend time hiking, rock climbing, mountaineering, skiing, canoeing, whitewater rafting, while also earning the certifications and training that employers want. And it gets better. The program takes place in Fernie, a town Rolling Stone magazine once hailed as North America's coolest ski town the place Hot Tub Time Machine was filmed. So I apply for the program and I get in and I've kept in contact with him and so I let him know and, and it just made sense that we would be roommates because we're both moving out to Fernie together from Vancouver Island. It's a long way away. Um, I've never been there before and I don't know anyone else in the program. Money's pretty tight. You know, I got a student loan but I can't afford to rent a place on my own so it makes sense to share. So I give Chris damage deposit and first month's rent, and he goes out to Fernie before me to look for a place for us to live. And he secures a place, and I move out there, and he's found us a place. Larissa's mom drives her out to Fernie and meets Chris. Her mom is impressed. She likes this young man who her daughter is sharing a place with. What's not to like? He is charming. He welcomes his new roomie and her mom with a gift of coffee and new mugs, a housewarming present. That year will be memorable in part because of the disturbing interactions with her roommate, Christopher Adair. But it's also memorable because of the snow. Fernie is known for its deep powder and 1999-2000 is a record snowfall year. Larissa tells me she'd never experienced such great snow, so much that chairlifts are actually buried and things like that. But she recalls an amazing ski season and the group she's with. The general group was like, everyone was very like passionate about the outdoors and we're all pushing ourselves really hard. And so it was um, just kind of like that, that young energy, you know? It's shaping up to be an incredible experience. But what Larissa doesn't realize, at least not yet, is that her new friend, her roommate, isn't quite what he appears to be. And this is going to sound really weird, but the first thing that I noticed, that I started to notice something was wrong, is we're in, in the apartment and I notice his socks. And I said, oh, I have the same socks. And then I was like, but that's funny, I can't find mine right now. And they're very distinct socks because when you buy outdoor socks, they're wool and they're expensive. So he had stolen my socks. Like, what the hell? Who does that? You know? This small, mundane thing is just the first of a cascading series of circumstances between Larissa and her new roomie. So what happened was he found a place. He took my money. He didn't give any of it to the landlord. He kept it. And he told the landlord that I was the one that wasn't paying. And he and I signed a lease agreement together for a year. So we're both on a lease agreement. I signed the paperwork. 
I don't know how he, you know, I mean, I do. He's a smooth talker. He managed to convince the landlady to have this place without paying the damage. Maybe he told her that I was going to pay it. I'd already paid it to him. He didn't give it to her. She doesn't know any of this when she moves in, begins the course, and settles into her new place with her new friend. And we start the program. I have my student loan, and it's barely enough to cover my year. Honestly, it's not really enough, but at the time I have my full student loan, and I had some trouble getting it in. It took a little while, and he tells me uh, at the start of the program, he says, um, all my outdoor gear has been shipped here and it's being held at, uh, at the Greyhound and I can't get it because my student loan hasn't come in yet. And he doesn't actually, I don't think he asked me for the money. Maybe he did or maybe he didn't. But I was just like, oh, well, I understand that getting your student loan can be difficult and take some time because I'd had some trouble with mine and he's going to get his student loan anytime. I'll just lend you the money until your student loan comes in. And, uh, and I, I don't know about the rent and the damage deposit at this point. I just still think we're friends and he's an honest person. So I lent him money to get his stuff out of the Greyhound. And, you know, that was a sum of like three or $500, which is enough. It's for, for a student, it's a lot. It, it's not a lot if you're going to get it back, but I didn't get it back. It's only been a few weeks of living together when she accompanies Chris and another friend on a climbing trip. The three of us went on a little climbing trip to the States, or we tried to, and we got turned around at the border. We were in the other guy's vehicle, tried to cross the border, and we couldn't get through because Chris had a criminal record. He told us what's probably lies. He said, you know, I had some BB gun incident where, you know, they thought I was using a real gun. And, and there was this immigration thing where I was trying to go to New Zealand. And, you know, he just told us some lies or some stories, or maybe it's the truth. I don't know. He told us some stuff that we believed at the time because we didn't know. And honestly, like even still, when I try and cross at that border, it comes up that I tried to cross with a criminal. And I have to explain that I didn't know who he was and I didn't know anything about him. And I don't know what's on his record exactly, but he is a very long rap sheet. Even at that age, he had a rap sheet. Their program means they're outdoors in the mountains, doing adventurous, even dangerous activities together. Activities where relying on each other means trusting someone with your life. And, th and this has nothing to do with his fraudulence, but he almost killed me. Like he did something that I could have died. It just has to do with not knowing enough and not being a climber, you might not understand, but basically he led up something on gear and put in an anchor that only had two pieces. When I got to the top, he clipped me into it. And normally, like normally you always clip yourself in. You don't ever let someone else clip you in, but he just, he just didn't know enough and he clipped me in and he did it and I let him because the anchor he'd made was off to the side and I couldn't reach it from where I was. So he clipped me in and you should always put in three pieces for a gear anchor, but he put in two and one of them blew and now I'm on one piece and also that piece gets shock loaded. So the whole thing was super unsafe and I just wanted down. So I made my own anchor and rappelled down immediately and then stayed on the ground. <laughs> I was like done for the day and I was pretty shaken. So that could have been the end of my life right there. But honestly, that wasn't him being malicious or being a bad person. That was just him 
not knowing enough. I don't remember if he apologized or not. I went down and he didn't fight me over that. He he was like, you want to go down? Cool. The financial stuff, he knew what he was doing there. He was very good at that. By now, she's beginning to have some doubts about her roommate. At the time when I first realized he, I was being ripped off, um, he had these notepads, and this is while I was still living with him, uh, he had these notepads around the apartment um, from his grandma, uh, and she's a real estate agent. Uh, her name is Jerry Adair, and I called her because her phone number was right on the notepad, and I said, your grandson is ripping me off. Can you help me? And she said, I'm sorry, dear, I can't help you. And uh, she said, you know, he's gotten, she said, I can't help you. And I said, um, Chris told me that you're paying for his school. Is that true? And she said, Chris has gotten a lot of money out of me over the years, but I didn't give it to him. That's what she said. And she sounded weary. You know, she sounded like she's been dealing this for a very long time and she's sick of it. And she wasn't mean to me, but she was cold. She was like, your problem, like, I don't, you know, I think he's been like that for a long time, you know, uh, just get what he wants out of people and not think twice about it. So not a nice person. Definitely not a nice person. And then the last straw. Just before the end of the month, he and, and some other people from my class, I don't remember who because I wasn't there. They did a little boys trip to Calgary, which is fairly close to Fernie. And he was arrested and held overnight in jail. I don't know what for, but they just told me that he didn't come back because he was arrested. And I was like, that's it. I'm out. Like, I don't know what this guy's deal is, but I'm not staying. So I wrote a letter to the landlady. And that's when I found out that he hadn't paid anything to her. And she was a nice enough lady, but she thinks I'm the bad one at this point. And she thinks I'm the one who hasn't paid. And so when I write her the letter and I'm moving out, she thinks it's me. So she's not particularly friendly to me because he's the one that got the place. He's the one that secured it. He's the one that has been talking to her. And I literally just met her. So I was moved out by the time he got back from jail. Overnight, I was out. So Larissa moves out, but she can't put Chris behind her just yet. I just needed out immediately. And, and then, uh, but I had still, I took all my personal belongings, but I still had some furniture in there. And then he got another roommate and I couldn't get my furniture back and I asked him for it. The program, which she loves, has just begun. She's in a cohort of about 20 people and she has to see Chris regularly. And to everyone else in the class, he's a great guy. And now we're in school together. I'm seeing him every day. He owes me money for the Greyhound. He owes the landlady the rent and the damage deposit and I want him to pay it because that's on my name and it's just not right. So I want him to pay that to her. I know he had it because I gave it to him. Well, I'm a pretty nice person and I definitely, um, it's not my strong point is like being a tough guy, although I've gotten better at it. I would hassle him about paying me back and he never did. And I tried to tell my classmates about it and no one would believe me. Um, they said, oh, but he's so nice. He gives me rides to school and like, he just, no one believed me at all. 
and he's still going to school. I'm seeing him every day. It's just infuriating. And, and on top of that, he's buying himself new stuff. He comes to school with new sunglasses that I know are like $150, $200. They're like these, you know, cool sunglasses with polarized lenses. And, you know, I, I, he just bought them. And I saw him all the time at school, right? So I tried to tell people, no one believed me. I kind of gave up, honestly. And that just goes to show what a master manipulator he was. You know, he was able to let people's guard down. And, you know, I don't know. I mean, I I was able to figure him out fairly quickly, but he'd already gotten quite a bit of money out of me before I figured it out, right? So I tried to protect other people the best I could. As winter wears on, Chris decides to plan a New Year's Eve rave party. Here's what Larissa says happens next. He organizes a rave party. And actually, I'll just tell you what kind of things he's into. Just it's important to know. But he's really into electronic music. He really likes that. He likes DJ music. And I do too. And that's one of the, you know, that was another thing we had in common. I, I like that kind of music too. And I like dancing. And anyway, so he organizes uh, a rave party and he's going to fly in this DJ and he recruits a guy from our class to help him with organize this event. And so he rents out the community center or some sort of community hall to host it. And he's flying in this DJ and he's selling tickets. And I tell this guy, his name is Dave. I'm like, do not put money up. I was like, this guy is a con. I've already told you that. Don't do this. And he's like, well, you know, I think it'll be really cool. I'm like, okay, we'll do what you want, but just don't put money in. I don't know if he did or not. That's He never admitted if he did or not, but he helped him with the rave. And it seems like it's going to go on. And he sells tickets through the local snowboard store to super nice guys who'd moved there from somewhere else. Super nice guys. They're selling tickets through the store. Well, the night of or the night before, he cancels it. But he's already picked up all the money from these tickets through the snowboard store. He's already come and collected all the money. And now he cancels the rave. And these guys are new in town. And they have a reputation to earn. So when people come back to the store and ask for their money back for the tickets, they had to pay them back. But Chris has the money. So... He really does a number on them. And also a lot of people just didn't get their money back. And, you know, rave rave tickets, I'm not sure how much they were, probably about 30 bucks. So when you times that by a lot of people, he's, you know, he's just done a, a town-wide scam now. And I think for sure, for sure, someone has to like out this guy. But no, he stays in town for like another, I don't know how many months. And he just lays low in the same apartment where I lived with him and... I find out from the landlady he never paid rent the whole time he was there and she couldn't get him out. I tracked down an owner of the snowboard store. They confirmed they confronted Chris. Things got heated, the police were called, but nothing could be done to get the money back. The course carries on with Larissa doing her best to steer clear of Chris. Not easy in their small class. You know, we're, we're all there and I just, you know, avoid being directly with him, obviously. You know, I would see him all the time, but I didn't um, engage with him. 
but yeah, I just continued doing the course for the most part, just forget about him and just chalk it up to he was a shitty guy and uh, you learn and you move on, right? Larissa's short time as Chris's roomie would have ripples in her life for a few years. She gets a call from a collection agent for $5,000, on the hook for rent at the apartment she and Chris shared. She successfully argues she didn't live there and doesn't have to pay. She thinks that's the end of it. And then, a few years later, something quite strange happens. And I was at a house party, and it's outdoorsy, nice people. And I see him across the room, and I'm like, that piece of shit. And I just, my blood boils when I see him, and I'm like, ugh. And then I'm like, okay, you know what? You're past that. You are just going to be civil, and you're going to say hi. So I go over, and I say, hi, Chris, how are you doing? And I just, you know, really pull myself together to just be civil and pleasant and just, you know, put it in the past. And he says to me, I'm not Chris, I'm Gary. And I was like, what? You're Chris. He's like, nope, my name's Gary. I don't know what you're talking about. And I'm just floored because I'm like, no, that's him for sure. But his face has filled out a little bit. So when I knew him in Fernie, he was very skinny and he was a little bit more filled out. So I have a second of doubt. I'm really weirded out by this. So I can't say for sure if it was him or not, but I think it was. And I think he had changed his identity or at least he was going by another name. So that's just something to, to think about is that he probably is a slippery fish. Before I let her go, she wants to share a few details about the Christopher Adair she knew back then. He has a metal plate in his face from where he got punched. Uh, he told me it was over a girl, but he has a metal plate in his face. And honestly, when I saw him, him or Gary at the party, I wanted to take a metal detector to his face and just see. I knew it! I knew it was you! He also used to have an eyebrow ring on one side. I don't remember which side it was, but he had one. And that leaves a scar usually. And um, it, was a, it was a ring, a piercing. And uh, what else about him? Oh yeah, he used to be in cadets. So when I lived with him, he, uh, he could not handle it. If you left one dirty fork beside the sink, he would lose it. He would, he would get really mad about that. And uh, he was very OCD about cleanliness and about dishes. And he told me it came from being a cadets. And, you know, when he was in cadets, they used to um, have to make their bed and you ha it had to be so tight that you could bounce a quarter off of it. So they would make their bed and nail the sheets down and then sleep underneath them or sleep on the floor so they could keep their beds tight. So I don't know if that shaped who he is a little bit. Like Tanya, Larissa managed to move on and even to learn from her experience with Chris. I honestly don't think about him and like, you know, I just kind of almost joke about it. I'm like, oh, I lived with a con artist once, you know, it was kind of like uh, just a life experience, you know, and uh, yeah, <laughs> that's what I call him, the con artist. That's what he is to me. Ahead, in part two of Red Jag Guy, meet two of the police officers whose careers have crossed paths with Christopher Adair. You're also going to hear where he is now, 
and why it's possible his past may yet catch up with him. My name is John Cullen, and I want to tell you a story. It's a story about a scandal, broken relationships, gossip, rumors, money, corporate rivalry, and curling. It's the story of Broomgate, how a single broom, yes, a broom, turned friends into foes and almost killed the 500-year-old sport of curling. It was a year I'd like to forget. Broomgate, available now.